Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning. It is uh, great to be gathered together today, and we're thankful that you're here. If you're a guest, let me be one of the people that just welcomes you, say thank you so much for being here. We're glad that you came to check us out, even a church at a school, uh, not knowing all the story of who we are and all that. You'd come and be here with us. We're so grateful for that. And just the one thing that I ask you to do today, if you would take uh, a, just a stop at the orange tent on your way out and just say hello to the people that are out there, we've got a, a, a gift that we want to give you. If you just tell them that today's your first time, or if you've never been there before, maybe you've been coming for like six or eight weeks and you've never stopped at that tent, if you just stop out there today and say, hey, I've never been here before. I want to come and get the gift. The guy up front told me to come get the gift. Go out there. we got a gift for you. We're not going to ask you to do anything else. not going to make you stand up right now, tell us your birthday and throw candy bars at you, anything like that. Just stop out at that orange tent, and it's, it's our way of saying thanks for being here, uh, that we appreciate you coming and checking us out as a church. And what we've been doing as a church, we've been doing this sermon series called, through First Peter called Not Home Yet. You just saw that video. The overarching theme of the whole book of First Peter, it's a book in the Bible, is that this place is not our home. And we believe as a church that if we would grasp that, it would change our homes. It would change our church, and it could change our community. And so the question we still have is this, what do we do while we're still here? If as believers in Jesus Christ, this place is not our home, our citizenship is in heaven, we can grasp that, we can get that in our minds, but what do we do now? And that's what we've been talking about as we continue to walk through this book, 1 Peter. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 today. I'm going to start reading in verse 4. Last week we left off in verse 3. We were talking about as newborn babies are supposed to crave the Word of God. And there's a new image today, and it's a new message. And so if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the message today. So let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can come together as a church family. Thank you for the relationships that are here in this church. God, I pray, my heart goes out right now, specifically those who are not connected in our church, that maybe come here every week and... And they listen to the messages, but they don't have relationships. God, I pray you connect them with somebody in the lobby today. I pray you connect them in a small group. I pray you get them connected just with the things that are happening at our church and, and help them to be a part of this community, not just somebody who attends a gathering that we have weekly. And Father, I pray as we open up your word that you'd speak your word into our hearts. I pray you'd speak your truth to us. I pray you'd give me words to speak to somebody who's a believer in Jesus that would be life-changing words today. I pray if there's somebody here who's not a follower of yours, that you'd draw them into a relationship with you this morning through this message. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as we get started in the message, let me just start with a simple question. It's three words. How you answer this question could be life-changing. How you answer this question could change the way that you view the rest of the world, the way that you relate with God, the way you think about yourself. Here's the question, simple question. Who are you? Who are you? Everybody here probably has an answer to that. At least you know your name, so you at least give that as an answer. There's probably lots of information we could give, things we do, experiences we've had. But how you answer that question at its core transforms how you view the entire world. And the reality is this, that most of our culture suffers from some form of an identity crisis. And I was thinking about it for myself this week, and, and I've got some levels of identity crisis in my life. Growing up, my mom always told me that I was American Indian, so I believed that. I didn't ask for any records, uh, any family trees, anything like that. I've just always believed it. I filled it out on paperwork. When I went to college, I wrote down, Native American. I received a minority scholarship for that. I'm planning on keeping that money, just so you know. <laughs> but my friends started to call it into question when they realized I actually got a scholarship 
for me. They said, you are white. You are not Native American. What do you, why do you say that? Everyone thinks that they're Native American. They give me a hard time. And I just thought, naysayers, they're haters. Haters are going to hate. You just, it's kind of oppression of my people. You're marginalizing me. Get it? And as I got older, I started to travel. And I was an intern at a church in Dallas, Texas, before I ended up coming here, and we went on a mission trip to Greece. I preached at this church, First Evangelical Church of Athens, and I remember preaching a sermon there, and after I was done, people started coming up to me and saying, are you from here? Are you Greek? And I'm like, no, I'm Native American. And I started, but in my heart, I started looking at them and thinking, these might be my people. <laughs> like, I look like some of these people. And then I traveled some different places. I've been other spots, and, and I've seen people and thought, maybe I'm these people. And, and I've got friends that are Middle Eastern, and I thought, maybe I'm Middle Eastern, plus the fact that oftentimes when I go through the airport, I'm randomly selected to be searched by the TSA. I was telling the first service, there was a time a couple years ago, my, my wife's blonde hair, blue eyes, all American, you know, probably Scandinavian, I don't know what she's from, but she, she doesn't get messed with by anybody. And so we're at this airport. We've already gone through the TSA. They've already searched me uh, through that part. We're sitting at the gate. Has anyone else had this happen before? My wife goes to get a cup of coffee. They call us to board the plane. I go up, and they randomly select me again to be searched at that moment. And so I'm, I've been pulled off in the corridor that goes between where they check you in and the plane, and they're searching through my bag, and I'm getting annoyed at this point. This was not one of my more Jesus moments. And they, I was like, I packed a bag like that for a reason, like they're asking me these questions, have I done anything wrong? Which I'm thinking, what terrorist says, if you wouldn't ask me that question, I would have gotten away with it. Like, who answers that, honestly? And they're asking me these questions, and my wife comes walking up. She goes, what's going on? I said, I've been randomly selected at this moment. And I think I said some line like, it has nothing to do with the fact that I look like most of the guys on the no-fly list, like just being rude. to the That's not a good idea, just so you know. <laughs> they did not like that. And so I've wondered before, what is my background? So this Christmas, I was given this gift by my wife, who likes to make fun of me about this, from Ancestry.com. <laughs> it's a little kit. You spit in the kit, and it tells you all the secrets to your life. And so I spit it in about two or three weeks ago, sent it in. They told me in about six to eight weeks, they would send me back information to tell me where I'm from, my country of origin. It'll give me another answer to the question, who are you? But let me ask you the question again. Who are you? Not just your race, not, race, not just your ethnicity, your DNA test results. Not what do you do? Are you a lawyer? Are you a doctor? Are you a teacher? Are you a janitor? Are you a mom? Who are you at your core? What does God say about that? Because that's what we're going to talk about today. If you have your Bibles, I already told you the passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to start reading in verse 4. We're going to read verses 4 through 8, which lay a foundation for where we're going to spend the majority of our time in verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10, I'm going to give you five different identity statements for a portion of you here today. Not everyone is going to tell you your identity. So we're not going to be able to spend a bunch of time unpacking each one, because there's a bunch of them. But I want to point you to who it says that we are, and then we're going to end by asking the question, why? Why is this our identity? So if you have your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, remember who Peter's writing to when he writes this letter originally. He writes to a group of people that are, that are suffering because of their faith. He calls them elect exiles, and so he tells them some of their identity at the beginning. And he tells them, because you've been born again, new birth, new identity, new life, new family, new mission. He's, he's given us allusions to this. He's going to unpack it today. But because of this, you're suffering. There's great pain going on in their lives. They feel marginalized. And he's told them all these statements that are things that God has done for them. And then he started telling them, as a result of what God's done for us, here's how we're supposed to live. Be holy. You want to be different? You want to make a difference? You got to be different. 
You gotta live like live with the fear of God, the fear of your father, love one another. That's how we'll see it. And then last week we ended talking about in chapter two, verses one through three. We should be like newborn babies, craving God's word, that he would speak to us. If you've tasted that he's if you've tasted, a big if, that he's good. But keep going back for more. But then look what he does in verse four. He changes the metaphor, he changes the word picture here. He says in verse four, as you come to him, talking about Jesus, a living stone. The picture is now stones. Now, Peter, his name means rock, and so maybe that's why he goes to stones here, but he says, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Talking about Jesus. Precious, that word precious there means value, invaluable. There's not a price you can put on Jesus. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And so you're a living stone. That's the first part of your identity. To be a holy priesthood. There's another part of your identity. If you've come to, if you've come to him, it says, and here's what you do, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and he quotes some Old Testament passages. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen, and there it is again, precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so you don't have shame if you believe in Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. Amen? Amen. Verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word and they were destined to do. Hmm. And so here you've got Peter basically putting the world in two different categories. Those who believe in Jesus, Jesus is the cornerstone. Those who do not believe in Jesus. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, he's going to say a whole bunch of things about our identity. Those are the five statements I'm going to give you in just a couple moments. Those of you who do not believe in Jesus, shame has not been removed, still guilty, destruction is coming for you. And so I'm not really speaking to most of you today that have not placed your faith in Jesus. Notice this, he doesn't give a third category. There's not a category of, well, I'm considering Jesus, and I might trust him at some point, but I'm not quite there yet. Or I'm skeptical, but I'm concerned about some of the things that I've learned about God, or some of the things I've seen in God's people, or there's hypocrites in the church, or whatever reason you might come up with. He doesn't give these categories as if there's everybody who's believed, everybody who hasn't believed, and then there's those of you who are still kind of wavering. No, it's either you're for me or you're against me, and that's how it all draws out. Those are the two categories, and I'm primarily speaking today to those of you who've believed in Jesus Christ. You've bowed your knee to Jesus. You've come to the place like we were singing in the songs. You've got no excuses left. You need his grace, and you've called upon him for eternal life. That's who we're talking to today. I'm going to address the rest of you at the very end of the message, okay? The rest of you can, can pay attention, but this doesn't really apply to you. And so here's the metaphor. What's, what's being talked about here is this. There are many things that define our identity in this culture. Just for a second, just think about some of them. We're in a consumeristic culture. Some people allow who they are to be defined by the things they possess. The car you drive, the clothes you wear, the house you live in, who your friends are, like social things that come in our culture. Materialism. Some people are defined by that. Some people allow themselves to be defined by who they're related to. So you get the Ancestry.com, and you find out that you know, Abraham Lincoln was your ancestor, and then that becomes your thing. You're, that's your identity. Some people are defined by the experiences they've had. Great experiences maybe uh, traveling, great experiences on mission trips, maybe terrible experiences that have happened in your life, and you let those things define you, and that becomes your identity. Some people try to portray an identity on social media, right? They put out stuff. They want these, this is what they want everybody to believe about them. And some people, when you're honest in your heart, you don't even like the picture of yourself you put on social media. 
And so the question becomes, beyond all that surface-level stuff, whether you're a lawyer, a doctor, a mom, a dad, a pastor, a teacher, a janitor, whatever, beyond the experiences you've had, at your core, who are you? And that's what Peter addresses here when he says it's ultimately determined by your relationship with Jesus Christ. Your identity is determined by your relationship with Jesus. That's our overarching main point today, is that your identity is determined by your relationship with Jesus. He says here, as you come to him, he's the living stone, he's invaluable, he's the treasure, then we are like living stones. You've got to ask yourself the question, why? This isn't, to me, maybe some of you love rocks, I don't know, but to me this is not as compelling of a word picture as he just gave. He was just talking about babies. I think, like, babies crave the word of God. And I think everybody can identify with a baby, right? Like, we all at least were a baby at one point. But then rocks? I had a liberal arts education undergrad. That means I had to take a bunch of classes I didn't want to take. One of them was geology. Let me tell you something. That is a snoozer, okay? <laughs> yeah, some people are taking it. Yeah, some people love it. Yeah. I don't know the difference between, you know, lime and broken piece of parking lot, but whatever. <laughs> he says here that Jesus, why do you call Jesus a living stone? Here's why. Because Jesus used the analogy himself. In the Gospels, he tells a story. In Matthew chapter 21, you can read it on your own later, but he tells this story. It's about his father, and he says there's a master who owns a vineyard, a wine press, and, and he leases it out to some tenants, people that it's not their home. They're temporarily there, right? You tracking? And, and it comes time for him to come get some of the fruit from the vineyard. And so he sends some of his servants. But the tenants, they beat one of the servants, they kill one of the servants, and they stone another one of the servants. God's gracious. I mean, the master. And so he sends more servants, prophets maybe, and they kill them too and do the same thing to them. And so then the master thinks to himself, I'll send my son. They'll respect my son. He sends his son. But then the story shifts, and Jesus starts to tell it from the the recipients, the the tenants' perspective, and, and he says that they thought to themselves, we'll kill the son so we can have the inheritance. And then he asked the audience, after they send the son, and the son gets killed, he said, what do you think that the master's gonna do to these tenants? And they rightly answer, He's going to destroy them. His wrath is going to come on them. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 118, which we have in our passage in verse 7. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so here's Peter, whose name is Rock. Remember Jesus? On this rock, I'll build my church. Your name is Peter. But then here's Peter saying, Jesus, you're the cornerstone of the church. You're, you're what everything is built around. You're what shapes the whole deal. You're the cornerstone. Who are these living stones? We're the living stones. Part of our identity based on how we relate with Jesus. And so don't miss this. Your identity is bigger than your individuality. He's not talking here just to you specifically. He's talking to a group of people. So some of you have wondered before, does my life matter? I want to be part of something bigger than myself. I want to get involved in some cause. Now, it's not wrong to get involved with like, you know, feeding people, making sure people have clean water, different causes. In fact, every Christian probably should have some kind of gospel cause they're focused on. But here's the reality. If you're a Christian, God's already made you part of something bigger. Because if you've come to him, as you come to him, the living, he's the, you know why he's the living stone? Because he didn't stay dead. He raised from the dead. The resurrection is still true. I know we talked about it last week with uh, Super Bowl Sunday, but let me tell you something. Jesus is still risen, amen? amen? He's the living stone, which means he can give life. As you come to him, the living stone, you become living stones. So what does that mean? Uh, one commentator I was reading, William Barclay, older commentator this week, and, and he told a story of a king in Sparta. Now, 
I'm a Michigan State fan. Great game yesterday, by the way, for those of you who didn't see it. And uh, whenever I hear Spartans, I get pumped about that, kind of like the, you know, excited pep rally kind of pumped about it. And I think about movies that I've seen with Spartans, whether it's like 300, those dudes are always like, they always have like a six-pack or like a 12-pack. Like they're huge. And they always work in unison. Like whenever the leader turns to them, it's like, like all together they say it. And so I've got this picture, even though I'm reading this like old Bible commentator and this story, I'm just imagining these like ripped dudes just standing there. And the story was that this king went to visit Sparta and he was talking to the king of Sparta. And the king of Sparta kept bragging about the walls of his nation. And then the other king looked around and he didn't see any walls. And he said to the king of Sparta, where are these walls that you speak of? And the guy turned to his bodyguard and he pointed and said, these are the walls which I imagine the dude's like 6'8", and he goes, and all the other guys in the kingdom, but then the king of Sparta said the next line, every man a brick. And he was saying what defends this nation are not some structure that we put up, it's these people. The nation is made up of the people. And what is being said here by Peter is this, when you come to Christ, you become a part of something bigger. It's the church. And you are the living stones. Every time somebody places their faith in Jesus, another brick is added to the church. See, we talked about oftentimes you'll hear people say the, the church is not a building. No, it's not. But the people are a building. That's the analogy that's being put here is that you are part of something bigger than your individuality. You're part of this movement known as the church. Now, some people, that sounds pretty weak because you've experienced church. And you're like, it's kind of like a social club. But you've got to think about what the church is supposed to be. The church is the bride of Christ, whom he loves. The church is what Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church is what thousands of martyrs have died defending throughout the years. That's the church. The church is supposed to be a movement, but it's not a movement like, say, Sparta would do, or, or say, like some kingdoms in our, in our world want to do today, where you, you go around, you plant your flag in a nation, you say, I've got dominion here, and you've got military conquest. It's not a military movement, it's a missionary movement. And the missionary movement is to make disciples. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, everywhere. Not so you can plant your flag in the ground, but so their hearts will be transformed and they become part of this movement known as the church, which is to make disciples. And you don't have to go to different nations to do it, by the way. God sovereignly chose where he put you. You do it as a missionary right here in Raleigh with the people that you live with, the people that you encounter, the people that you interact with, where you live and you work and you play. The baristas, the co-workers, the family. God put you in your family for a reason, believe it or not. And we all got family members we don't like. And why? Why would we be part of this movement? Well, you're, you're following a guy, by the way, that it says here was rejected. He's either your cornerstone or your stumbling block. And so he says here in verse 8, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. They've rejected Christ, the stone that the builders rejected. So don't forget that when you think about your identity and the statements I'm about to give you. This is a radical call. And so your radical call might not be to die in Syria with your head chopped off, like some Christians are being called to do today. But it is a call to die to yourself. And so you think about who you're following. You think about what oftentimes we want our identity to be. We want to be successful. You're following a guy who never had a position. We want people to like us. They killed him. We want material gain. And some preachers, even popular preachers, will tell you the key to your financial success is to trust Jesus. The guy had no place to lay his head. That didn't even make sense. 
It's a radical call if you're following Jesus. So why would we do that? And here's the answer. It's part of your spiritual DNA. It's who you are. And that's what he tells us in verses 9 and 10. And so what we're going to do the rest of the time today is I'm going to unpack verses 9 and 10. I'm going to give you five statements about if you're a follower of Jesus, this is who you are in Christ. It says here, but, he's just talking about those who've rejected, now a strong contrast, but you, and the you there is plural, by the way, y'all, I don't know why they don't translate the Bible that way. No respect to us Southerners, right? It could be my Texas roots. All y'all, talking about all, this is not just you. Your identity is bigger than your individuality. All of y'all are, so here's an identity statement, but you are, and I'm going to read all of them, then we'll come back, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen, Amen for sure. First one here, these five identity statements. We don't have time to unpack them all a bunch, but the first one is you are chosen. You are chosen. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race. Not based on your ethnicity, not based on that you're Jewish, not based on that you're white, not based on that you're black, yellow, green, whatever. Ancestry.com will tell you. That's not what he means by race. He said, you're, the race that we're talking about here is a race of faith. And so there should be no racism in the church, by the way, because we're all one. if we're one in Christ, one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one Holy Spirit, one mission, one church. Amen? You're a chosen race. What does it mean to be chosen? Well, most of us know what it's like to not be chosen, right? Experienced that before? Go on the playground and they're doing dodgeball. Maybe you're one of the last people picked, which you know they just had to do that because the teachers made them pick everybody and you feel left out. Or you tried out for a play and they didn't pick you. I, I was telling the first service, I tried out one time for a singing group in high school. They told me they'd call me back. I'm still waiting. <laughs> I haven't heard back. Still, they must have been a long list. Some of you tried for job promotions. You didn't get picked. It stinks to get overlooked in those things. Remember who Peter's writing to here. These, these are Christians that are elect out. They're scattered. They're outcast in this world. They probably wonder, as they're being marginalized, does anyone notice? And Peter's saying, God hasn't overlooked you. You're one of his chosen. Now, before I unpack a little bit about what it means to be chosen, I realize talking about a doctrine like this, election, predestination, being chosen, is always tense in church. Because people come from all kinds of different backgrounds. And most people, when you start to think about it, you wonder, how can, how can God choose us, us be predestined, be elect, all the language we've seen through this, this passage of Scripture, and us have free will? And what we see in the Bible is we see people are responsible for the decisions. They have, we have decisions to make. But God is sovereignly in control. And so some of you might come up to me after the service today and say, how do you reconcile these things? I'm going to tell you the same thing Charles Spurgeon was asked one time. How come you preach evangelistic messages, but you believe in God's sovereignty? In other words, he's going to pick, God's going to pick whoever he wants to pick. And he said, how do you reconcile those two things? And Charles Spurgeon said, I never try to reconcile friends. Both those things are true. They don't make sense to me. Here's the reality. It's above my pay grade. I don't get it. Doesn't mean it's not true. And God teaches both things in the Bible. You have decisions to make. You're going to be held responsible for those decisions. One of them is whether or not you come to Christ or not. But if you come to Christ, you know what it shows us? You were chosen. You made the decision to come to Christ, but it shows that he picked you. You were chosen. And why, why, why were we chosen? And just pause and think about that for a minute. 
Were you in here? Did you hear when, when the, the young lady that was leading us in worship this morning, Sarah, read Psalm 139 to us? Like, God knows everything about us. And I think about that, and I think, there's stuff about me I want anybody to know, and you know that? He knows our thoughts before we think them. Sinful thoughts we have. Let me tell you something. I'm an idiot, and he picked me. Like, were you here a few weeks ago when I talked about Christmas? I almost cut my hand off opening a Christmas present for one of my kids, and you want to use me to change the world. <laughs> that is laughable. Why? And then I think about Corinthians. Corinthians says he chose the foolish things of the world to shame the world. <laughs> But he didn't just pick you because you're the worst. But let us think in for a second that you were chosen by him. And then why did he choose us? I'm going to read you a passage from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 8. If you don't want to look it up for yourself right now, you can look it up later. And it talks about why he chose Israel. And I think it shines some light on why he chose us as the church. Look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, precious people. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But here's why. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And in this passage for these people, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. For us, we know that we were bought, you go back to chapter 1 and verse 18, from the futile ways of this life. We were redeemed from having to live our lives from all the empty stuff, vanity, vanity, all this vanity that so many people pursue identity in. You were chosen to come out of that. Why? Because he loves you. If you've ever wondered if you're loved, let me tell you something. If you're a Christian, you are loved. Why? Why does God love us? It's not because we're the best, I could really use them on my team. And it's not because you're the worst. I'm going to just show that I can take it. It's not because you're in the middle. In fact, it doesn't have to do with you. He loves you because he loves you. That's the answer. I think, well, what's it? how could I share that? How did I get in, that in the heart of the people? And I was thinking this week, like, best analogy I could think of was my kids. And I thought, well, I love my kids just because they're my kids. And I, love my I could tell you stuff I love about them, how one of them, Janie, is just like such a joy. She just has so much joy in life. Ava, she's passionate about everything and so she got all these emotions but that's not why I love them I don't love them because of their characteristics I just love them and I was sharing that with a friend who knew I was going to preach this message he goes that's a terrible analogy I was like oh why well, thank you Christian friend <laughs> he said because your kids are endearing to you is what he said he said we weren't endearing to God we were his enemies he said why don't you tell your church that it's the way that you would love someone who tried to kill your kids if you just chose to love that person. I thought, I wouldn't love that person. Exactly. His love's altogether different. And then I thought, is it true what he's saying? It is. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were pursuing futile ways of life, while we were rebelling against God, it wasn't something endearing within us. He loves you because he loves you. Do you know what that means? You can't make him not love you. Nothing that you've done or has been done to you affects the love that God has for you. God loves you. You are chosen. Ephesians says it like this. Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You are chosen. Second one, you are 
a royal priest, you're a royal priest, you are a royal priesthood, verse 9. But you are, all y'all are, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. That's language from Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Right before God gives the Ten Commandments, He's speaking to the people, and He says, you're a nation of priests. God's always wanted priests. A royal priest, king priest, you could say. You could say instead of you're a royal priest, you're king priest or queen priest. You're all royal priests. What does that mean? Well, think about it like this. It's Old Testament language. In the Old Testament, worship was largely a spectator sport unless you were a priest, right? You bought a sparrow, you bought a bull, you bought a goat, whatever it was, and you brought it and you hand it off, let the professionals do the heavy lifting. They will slaughter it, they'll put it on the altar. They do everything, you just watch. And I think about that for us. We are a culture of spectator sports. Think about it last week. We watched the Super Bowl. Millions of people watched the Super Bowl. And many people saw Tom Brady drop that one pass. Did you see that? You know, the pass is coming out there. He drops the pass. All kinds of New England fans are mad at him. All the Eagles fans are like, that's right, he's a loser. <laughs> Even though, he, yeah, whatever. Uh, I don't want to give him any props. <coughs> he's from Michigan. I'm a Spartan fan. Did you get that part? Anyway. <laughs> they got it. <clears throat> so he drops this pass. Think about what's happening. You've got a guy here who's got paid nutritionists. He works out eight hours a day, maybe more, doing this stuff. Watching films, studying plays. He's going out there to make this catch. Got a 250-pound linebacker. He's about to rip his head off. Who also has a paid nutritionist? Who lifts weights all days long? Who's done two-a-days? Who's been playing this game since he was five? And then we got a nation of people at home eating potato chips. (laughs) Brady, you loser! Just falling all over our bellies. (laughs) Spectator sport! And then... In between the plays, because I saw that a football game takes about three and a half hours, there's about 11 minutes when the ball's actually in play. Did you know that? So the rest of the time is a bunch of dudes that have a job to watch a game and then to talk to the people that are watching the game. What a crazy job. Your job is to watch a game and talk about it. That's a crazy job. Some of you used to play the game, but now it's a spectator sport for you. Some of us are going to watch the Winter Olympics over the next couple days. How many people in here know anything about figure skating? Be honest, be honest. Anybody? It's okay if you do, but then we're going to hear Scott Hamilton tell us something about like how to jump, right? The triple axle lending off of a diving board, jump off the glass, land in the middle of the ice. Like Some girl's been doing this her whole life. She was born and bred for this, and she's going to fall down. And she's going to represent her. And you're going to be, you loser! You lazy butts are sitting there watching this on TV. She's doing it. It's a spectator sport. Here's the reality. You know what it means that you're a priest? Your worship is not a spectator sport anymore. To be a priest means you've got direct access to God. In the Old Testament, there was one priest who had direct access to God who could go into the holiest place one day a year. Not everybody else. Do you know what this means now? You've got direct, it doesn't matter what any religion tells you, doesn't matter, you don't have to pay a professional religious guy to pray for you. You've got access to God. You're, you're a royal priesthood. It's what Martin Luther said in the Reformation, it's the priesthood of believers, is that all of us have access to God. You know what it means to be a priest? Not only do you have access to God, but you represent God to the people, and you represent the people to God. See, the Bible wasn't written in Latin, so that's not why I tell you this, but Later, the Latin, the Latin, what they call a priest, is pontifex. Do you know what pontifex means? It means bridge builder. Last week in our uh, Discover 101 Southbridge, we had a lunch afterwards for those who were new to the church. We do it about every, every month. And so if you weren't here last week and you want to be a part of it, next month, sign up. You can be part of it. But what happens is I tell the story of our church. 
And I'm just talking about our vision. We want to connect people to Jesus for life change. We've never, and our plan wasn't to build a building or to get as many people to come as we could. We just pray, God, we want to see lives changed. We think that's what you're all about. So bring us the people you want changed, and we'll speak the word into their life, and we're going to live life together. We're going to do stuff. And we're trying to reach the community and change them. And then a guy asked a question afterwards. He said, well, why the name Southbridge? Which oftentimes we get asked. Well, why the name Southbridge? And I said, well, it's the metaphor of the bridge that we wanted. I said, because oftentimes people that are in the community that don't attend church, they think of the church as like this moral place that yells at the rest of society telling them how they're supposed to live. Hey, act this way, clean up your act. If you clean it up enough, you can come hang out with us. Or come hang out with us enough, then you'll clean up. And we just yell at everybody. So we believe that we're supposed to be bridges into the community, that every person that's a believer in Jesus has the Holy Spirit in them. They've got the gospel message. They are priests. So wherever you go, you take the gospel. And so let's build bridges into the community by the way that we live, the lives that we live as we go out into the community. That's what a priest does. And so we challenge everybody in our church to have one person you're praying for. So then you, you represent that person. If you go before God, you're begging for their salvation. You're begging for God to do a work in their lives. You're a bridge. You represent God to the people. And you represent the people to God. You all are. Not a guy who stands on the stage. Not somebody that we hire out in the lobby. All of us are priests before God. Direct access and a bridge to the people. Not only are you a royal priesthood. Not only are you chosen. But you're also, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rephrase this next one, not the exact language of the passage, but you're unique. You're unique people. And here's the reality. God's always wanted a king priest, by the way, just so you know. That was what Adam was supposed to be in the garden. Some of you didn't know that. He was given dominion, king, and he's supposed to serve, not the land, the Lord. As a priest, he failed. The nation, Israel, I, read you, I told you that passage in Exodus chapter 19, they're supposed to be a nation of priests, they failed. They're supposed to be different than everybody else, just so you know. They weren't supposed to have a king, but they wanted a king so they could be like the other nations. So Saul, David, they blew it. And give another chance, no, nope, they go after false gods. They blew it. You get to the New Testament, there's an ultimate king priest, his name is Jesus. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's also our high priest. And he did what Adam was supposed to do. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he became obedient, and he gave his life, even obedient to the point of death on a cross. You remember the temptation for Adam? Eat the fruit, you'll be like God. He and Eve, they failed. They pursued something that wasn't for them. And so what does a priest do, by the way? A priest offers spiritual sacrifices. Remember verses 4 and 5? We, we saw that, spiritual sacrifice. You know what your spiritual sacrifices are? If you're following Jesus, what did Jesus offer? His life. So you read the whole New Testament, and you've got all kinds of spiritual sacrifices, prayers, good deeds. When you lead somebody to Christ, you see those things labeled. I can give you passages you want to email me. Go ahead. But the ultimate summary of it all is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, offer your lives as living sacrifices, your whole life offered to God. That's what the priests do. And that's one of the things that makes you unique. Next point, unique. It says here, a holy nation. But you are a chosen race. All y'all, chosen race, Royal priesthood, a holy nation. That means you're unique. We talked about God's holiness a couple weeks ago when we were in chapter 1, and it said there, be holy just as your Father is holy. And we talked about how many of us view holiness as not doing certain things and doing other things. It's moral purity. And there's a reality to that, that one of the definitions of holiness is moral purity. But the primary definition of holiness is uniqueness, different. Remember the point that week was this. If you want to make a difference, you've got to be different. 
Your father was different. We have a unique God, so we should be a unique people. And so when we talk about God's holiness in the Bible, it's talking about that he's altogether different than any other God. He is the creator. That means this, every other God is part of our creation. And what happens is God creates, he speaks everything into existence, and then we worship creation rather than the creator. And if you go through the Bible, you'll see over and over God's showing himself to be unique. He sets his people free from bondage in Egypt. I read the Deuteronomy passage already. It alludes to that. But if you go back and you read Exodus, there were all these plagues that happened before that. Do you know each one of those plagues was actually a battle against one of the false gods of Egypt? And he was showing he was different. You get to the book of Joshua, and there's this prostitute who hides a couple of God's people and lies for them and, and risks her own life. And you wonder why. Read the passage in Joshua chapter 2. Do you know why? Because she knew that the God of Israel was a unique God. He is unique. And we then, therefore, as people, should be unique people. And so you wonder, your, have you ever wondered your place in this world? Like, you're part, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of this church. You're part of a unique people. Some of you may have seen there's a movie that's come out recently. It's supposed to be the life story of P.T. Barnum. It is a very loose connection to the story of P.T. Barnum, if you read his story. He's not as good of a guy as Hugh Jackman. I don't know if he's as handsome. I don't know if he can sing as well. But I know he's not as good of a guy. He's a racist. He objectified people. If you read about the real P.T. Barnum, but in the movie, P.T. Barnum, he's like a unifier of people. And so what happens is he's going to make some money, and you kind of get the idea that he's a con man. He brings in some people. He's in a guy who's 350 pounds, says, this is the 500-pound man. Brings in a tall guy, puts him on stilts and all this kind of stuff. He's got this bearded woman that he gets to be part of his show, finds her at work, hiding behind a curtain, but she can sing. Goes to this guy who's really small, says to him, everybody's unique. That's part of my show. At the end of one of the trailers, it says, no one ever changed the world by being like everyone else. And so the idea is this uniqueness through the whole movie. There's a, a point in the movie this musical drama where it's been made clear that he's a con man, he doesn't really care about people, and the bearded woman comes to him and says, you, you might have been using us, like she doesn't say that, that's my paraphrase, but she says, but you gave us a family. You gave us a place in this world. And it was all these unique people put together. Together, they had a place. That's us as followers of Jesus Christ, just so you know. A bunch of you neat, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. No two people are exactly the same, even twins. You're not exactly the same. God's made you uniquely, and he's put us together to be a unique people because we have a unique God, so therefore we should stand out. We should live different. What does that look like? It's not just the words we don't use and the things we don't do and the places we don't go. We should be altogether different than the people of this world. I read a story this week that just illustrated to me that if you live different, people notice. It was this missionary. His name was Douglas Nichols. And Doug was, he got tuberculosis when he was in India one time and had to stay in this medical ward for months. So imagine what that's like. Very poor country, by the way, in India. He was in this medical ward with all these other people that have tuberculosis. And there was this time at the very beginning when he tried handing out gospel tracts and the gospel of John. Nobody wanted anything to do with it because they just thought, you're a rich white American, so we hate you. So he didn't need Ancestry.com to tell him. They didn't like him because he was from America. They just assumed he was rich. That's how we were perceived. And so he's just trying to make it through. Stop trying to give out the gospel tracts and the books. But there was a season where every night he was waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning coughing. And he said, the first night I woke up at 2 in the morning, and I looked over, and there was this emaciated old man that was laying in this cot, and he was trying to get up on his own, and he, he wasn't strong enough to get up. And, and then he just kind of went back to sleep with this, like, whimper. The next morning when he woke up, the, entire, the whole medical ward was upset with this old man because he couldn't contain himself. So bad that the nurse who was cleaning him up 
and the stench was so bad in the place, she actually hit him while she was cleaning him up. You know, nurses are compassionate. She was so mad at him for the mess that he had made. The next night, he woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning, same scenario, the old guy's there, and he's trying to get out of the cot, and he can't. And he's silently whimpering in this bed. And what the guy decided to do, Doug went over to him, and he put his arms out, and the guy was terrified at first. He realized after a minute he was trying to help him up. And he helped him up, and he took him to the bathroom, which was just a hole in the ground, brought him back to the cot, laid him down, and he said as he was laying him down, the guy kissed him on the cheek. Laid the guy down. At 4 o'clock in the morning, another guy came to him, with a warm cup of tea. And they didn't speak the same language, but he motioned to him, I want one of your books, the Gospel of John. For the rest of the day, people in that medical ward were coming to him to get those books. Because you know why? When you live different, people notice. As God's people, we are a unique people. We should be different. That's your identity. You are chosen, loved. You are unique, Holy, you are royal priesthood. And what's the next one? I'm going to rephrase that one too and call it valued. You are valued, a people of his own possession. Most of us get the concept that you can receive value by receiving by who it is that owns whatever it is, whatever the thing is. I was, I was having dinner with my girls this week. We went on a date on Friday night. We were talking and I asked them, I said, do you know who Justin Timberlake is? And they were like, dad, everybody knows who Justin Timberlake is. I was like, I told him a story. I said, there was one time Justin Timberlake was eating some French toast. He only ate half of it. Later, they sold that French toast for $3,000. And I said, what do you think would happen if I didn't eat all my food tonight? You know what they're going to do with it? They're going to throw it away. And then I told him, you know, I've been sick for a little bit over a week now. I said, do you know what people treat me like? They treat me like they want to quarantine me. I came into the office this week, and Michelle, that worked, she was at the front desk. She's like, why are you here? <laughs> it wasn't like, hey, I'm so glad you're here. Pastor John came knocking on my door, then he started stepping back when he heard my voice, and it's like they wanted to spray Lysol, put the tent around me, and then I told my girls a story. I said, Scarlett Johansson one time was on Jay Leno's show. They don't even know what that is, by the way. I said, she blew her nose on some Kleenex. They sold the Kleenex for $5,000. Then I told them this one. I said, Britney Spears chewed some gum. They sold her chewed gum for $14,000. My oldest daughter said, who's Britney Spears? And I was like, I am so old. I thought that was cool. I was like, how do you know Justin Timberlake? They used to be, any anyway, you don't have any idea. <clears throat> Elvis Presley, there's a different one for them. Lock of hair for Elvis Presley, $15,000. I got my hair cut this week. They threw that stuff away. <laughs> so most of us get the concept that value goes based on ownership. You see, the houses of the rich and famous sell for more, not because they have more features, but because of who they belonged to. Some of you wonder if you have worth. Let me tell you something. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you belong to God. Your value comes from him. You are valued. See, it says a people of his own possession. That's your identity. That's who you are. Not only are you his creation, but he bought you with the blood of Christ. Which if you go back to chapter 1, you'll see you're redeemed from your futile ways. How? Not with gold or silver or perishable things, but the very blood of Christ. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You are valued. You're unique. You're a royal priesthood. You're chosen. And the last one, you've received mercy. You're mercy receivers. You have received mercy. Mercy, look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Not all of you, 
Those of you who've come to Christ, if you've come to the stone, the living stone, the cornerstone, you've received mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is this, that you don't receive the punishment you deserve. I remember one time, uh, I was driving in my car, and we were going to South Point Mall. It's about six, seven years ago, going to South Point Mall, and pulled up off of I-40. I've never come to that light before and not seen a beggar. I was reading this week, a commentator say about this passage of scripture, this is beggar's language. It reminded me of this story. When I pulled up there, there was this guy begging. I was not in a particularly generous mood at that point. And I judged him, to be candid with you. I looked him up and down, thought, I don't see any disabilities. You should be working. I'm not giving you any money. Arms are working, legs are working, you're walking around. I think you're just scamming people. Then my daughter, my oldest daughter now is 12 years old. She's probably about five or six at the time. She says, Dad, what's that man doing? I said, uh, and I remember this vividly. I said, he won't work, and so he's asking people who do work if they'll give him money. About two minutes later, silent, right? We drive. My wife's gracious. She's in the car. The kids are in the car. Nobody's saying a word, which is a miracle in and of itself. <laughs> we drive to South Point Mall. I park the car. My five- or six-year-old daughter then asks this question. I'm not kidding. She says, Dad, what's mercy? Uh, what I received from Jesus Christ that I should then give to others? That I deserve punishment because I go my own way? But instead, he's given me this grace, what I don't deserve, eternal life, mercy, that I should get his wrath, but he was instead put on the cross of Christ. So you are a people, you had not received mercy. That means you are the people of verse 8. You are going to receive destruction. Those are the people who haven't trusted Jesus. But when you trust Jesus, your identity is directly tied to your relationship with Jesus Christ. You've received mercy. But the question is why? Why any of this? Yeah, you're chosen. Awesome. Now you know you're loved. You're a royal priesthood. You got direct access to God. That's great. You're different. You're unique. You're valued. You've got mercy. So what? I skipped reading the second part of verse 9 just now. Go back to it. Sandwich between verse 9 and 10, second part of verse 9, tells you the reason why. I'll read the whole verse, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. And this is a key word. Underline this word. That, that, here's why. And we'll talk more about this in the rest of this series. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Your identity is not even about you. He's given you a marvelous identity so that when you live according to your identity, you reveal him. Amen. That you would declare his proclaim. That's really a word for advertisement, by the way. We're all in marketing, even though we didn't know it. Presenting God. That you would proclaim the excellencies of him God, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then a reminder, once you weren't a people, you were those people headed for destruction, but you're chosen, royal priesthood, valued, highly unique. You're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Declare it. How? How? How do we do that? Well, singing praises, yes, that's true. The lives we live as we offer our bodies, living sacrifices. When we share the gospel, that's declaring the praises, the excellencies of God. But here's the reality. Some of you share the gospel. We could tell everybody in our church that is a member. We want you to have one person trying to share the gospel. So you share the information. You tell them God's wrath's coming against them. But Jesus paid the price. But you've got to trust Jesus as your Savior. And they haven't yet. Now what? Keep telling them how great your God is in your daily life now. The mercies he's revealed to you. The things he doesn't give you that you deserve. The grace that comes into your life. Just walk back through these. The very fact that you're chosen, that means he loves you. What a great God. The fact that you're, you have direct access to him, what an amazing, gracious God. 
that we're a unique nation. We're set apart. We're part of a people. He's destroyed racism. What a unique and amazing God. People for his own possession, he wants us to be with him. We declare that greatness to him. So we don't need a DNA test for that. It's not about whether you're a lawyer or doctor or what your profession is. It's about who you are at your core. And you're called then to proclaim the excellencies of him who transformed that identity for you. 